0: Welcome to The Tidal Year, a series about the joy of swimming. With the help of some special guests, we'll discover the human stories behind why we swim. Together, we'll share tales from the places that helped us fall in love with swimming. From lidos to lakes, by leisure centres in the ocean, I can't wait to dive into these magical places. I'm your host, writer and wild swimmer, Freya Bromley. And every week, I'll be chatting to a new explorer, swimmer, author, or campaigner about what water means to them. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank today's sponsor, TryHard. I love being in the water, but I don't love what pool chemicals like chlorine do for my skin and hair. Trihard develop water sports specialized skin and hair solutions that eliminate those negative effects of pool chemicals and ocean salts. I'm thrilled to share with all listeners of the Tidal year a very exclusive 15% off when you use code TIDAL at tryhard.co. This week is the final episode of series one. What a journey it's been. So many fantastic swimming stories. I hope you've enjoyed them as much as I have and that they've kept you company when you leave for a swim. Of course, I had to finish series one with a very special guest. So on today's episode, I'm joined by Tom Gregory, the author of A Boy in the Water. In 1988, Tom swam at the English Channel, and he was only 11 years old. He was the youngest person in history to complete the 32-mile swim, and his regulations have changed since then. It's a record that will never be broken. We spoke about adventures with his swimming club, endurance swimming at such a young age, the coach who guided him through it all, and the impact that he had on his life. Tom and I also spoke about memories, writing, 80s nostalgia, and his reflections on how times have changed with the way we parent, encourage, and trust. I hope you find this chat as fascinating as I did. Tom really is a special and charismatic storyteller. I'll speak to you again at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Hey, Tom, how's it going? Hi,
1: Fred. How are you doing?
0: Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today to chat about your book and your adventure. Hopefully this is a bit of a nostalgia trip for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm always, I, I, look, I, I think it's a, a lovely thing to be able to talk about. And it's, you know, I think as we mentioned in a prequel, you know, it's something that's sort of nestled happily 30 plus years in my past that has Sort of come back almost, almost to the point of eclipsing the the, the thing that happened in nineteen eighty eight, which is wonderful, really. So yeah, delighted to share it with you.
0: And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what happened in nineteen ninety eight for those listeners that might not have heard about you and your adventure. What it is that sparks that history that you're still living on thirty years later?
1: Yeah. So the story I wrote opens with probably the most sort of impactful memory I have of those years, which is being stood on a on a beach in France in the dark. It was five in the morning. And sort of looking out across, you know, what was a very black <laughs> sea, and and I could see the yeah, smudge of light on the horizon, which was Dover, England, the you know, English coast. And there I was, and I sort of pulled my goggles onto my head, and I said to myself, "I'm going to swim there. You know, I'm going to swim to England. I'm going to swim home." And uh, and I stepped off into the dark, and uh, there was a little a little fishing trawler, you know, hundred or so yards offshore, just bobbing away in the swell, with the neon lights on the deck and I knew who was on the boat and that they were going to see me through and look after me and off I went and that was a big deal because that was the 6th of September 1988 and I was 11 years old and so if i if i could do that and it was a one a one chance a single chance that you get for these things there would never be a second attempt in that year and then i'd be told so if i could do it i would have a world record and if i couldn't that was the end of it and so 12 nearly 12 hours later 11 hours 54 minutes later i Touched the shore in uh, just outside Dover Harbor, scrambled up the beach, <laughs> and then turned around and faced France. And thought, well, that's it. I've done it.
0: <laughs> you scrambled up the beach. Wow. And I, I that especially was something I didn't know. I learned so much about the adventure and the challenge, the incredible endurance and challenge of, of swimming the channel. Because I didn't know that you had to take three steps and to be clear of it and all these things, you are just totally immersed in the adventure.
1: Yeah. I, I, even now i don't know how true that is it was just kind of the, the received wisdom at the time and so i think it's true but certainly that was that was what i was led to understand and, and to qualify the swim and i always used to think gosh well, imagine a scenario where you could only take two imagine <laughs> imagine imagine being so tired after swimming what was 32 miles that you could only take two steps up the shore then what <laughs> i used to worry about that at some point but uh yeah it was amazing amazing four four years of my life that and i suppose you know that's the story that I wrote is of course, it's about swimming, and of course, on some level, it's about me. but when I decided to try and write it down, it soon became apparent that the story was maybe not so much about me, it was all about the others around me and what happens to young people when they when they get surrounded by that stuff and then actually, it was the story of a of a sort of seven to eleven year old boy growing up, you know, and the backdrop was swimming <laughs> so on some level, it's a, it's quite nostalgic. It's a little bit sort of coming of age. It's usually reminiscent of a glorious time in the late to mid, mid to late eighties <laughs> with a soundtrack and all the things that go with that and your first crush and all those good things. So yeah, it's a memoir, you know, it's a recollection of, of what happened, how I saw it through my eyes as a, you know, nine, 10, 11 year old boy.
0: It does come with an accompanying soundtrack. You definitely need to make a playlist to go with it because the way you write about music and having your, oh, you have to send it, it's, it's fantastic. And talking about your Walkman and talking about, you know, having a little chef breakfast and hanging out with all your friends, it really transports you to a very special time in British pop culture history.
1: I think so. I don't, and of course, yeah. You know, at that age, you don't really realise that you're sort of part of a of, a, of a, a pretty cool epoch, if I can put it that way. But having a big sister helps with these things, you know, because Anna's Anna's what three and a half, three and a bit years my my elder, and so I never had a choice. You know? I always had to know what what was what was in, you know, what to listen to, what wasn't in. It's just as important to know what is what is. So, and so she was so immersed in it. that age gap was quite cool because I I could always get to pretend to be a little bit older than I was. And within the context of the group in the swimming club, I guess we'll get to that in a bit, but I was the sort of baby of the gang. You know, I was a young boy, very young boy, hanging out with young teenagers, really, and, and all the way through to adults. And so I was sort of the mascot on some level, albeit one who could swim quite well. <laughs> so I sort of, I was exposed to some of that stuff quite, quite young, and I never regretted that. That was brilliant. That's what made it all so, uh, so rich.
0: Yeah. Some of my favorite parts of the book are the bits with you and Anna. They're very tender and this beautiful um, love and the way that we show affection to siblings, especially without really realizing it at the time, just the way that we look out for one another. And especially, you know, writing about her going to get her pet shop boys record and phoning your parents to kind of make sure that you're okay. And you're offering her a lemon sherbet. Very, very tender. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, we, we, her and Anna and I have always been, or Moog as she's known, which for the nostalgic is a reference to the, um, to the pink creature in Willow the Wisp, which was a cartoon of the day. And as a cheeky younger brother, I said, that one's you, that's you, (laughs) you're the Moog. You know, anyway, so Anna Anna is uh, my sister. We've always been really lucky to have a, a really tight relationship. And I guess that was kind of shored up actually by swimming, because that was the thing that her and I did together. You know, Wednesday night, every session we'd go to the bars together. And if, and if I fell off, or if I fell over, she'd pick me up and vice versa, you know? And of course, it gave us a, a shared group of friends, which were not defined through school. And of course, we're, well, not of course, but we, we were in different schools at that time. And so it was a thing that, that bound us, you know? And it still does. Anna and I will get together, you know, as many times a year as we can with all our families. And the thing we'll end up talking about after the second bottle of Prosecco is swimming. Yeah. And playing that playlist, by the way.
0: That, oh. that, came,
1: that happened two weeks ago when she came down to visit, and I just hit channel swim playlist, and we're, we're straight back to 1987 or something.
0: <laughs> oh, how powerful. Music is such a, a fantastic way to take each other back. And do you still swim together? Do you ever have holidays or trips where you go and swim together?
1: Yeah, kind of. So, yeah, Anna spends a bit of time by the sea where she can. And um, and so, yeah, we, we do actually. And she spends most of her time down in Wiltshire where, where they live. And Sometimes I'm trying to sort of find a little river where <laughs> <Like, laughs> <laughs> oh, somewhere in this Salisbury Plains, to get, to get to, come on, let's get in, let's get in. So yeah, she she still tries to stay in touch with it where she can and so do I. Yeah.
0: And are you still the baby of the group or do you try and assert yourself as a uh, bit more of a grown-up now? Or do, do you find that you've still fallen to those dynamics? Because you're all grown up now, but is she still the bossy big sister? I tell
1: you, there's something about families that Anna observed, which is we, we sort of get given a role early that we end up playing to, to the rest of our lives. even beyond the point where it's true and so Anna was the kind of really bright studious one who was always destined for you know academic stardom and by the the fact that I swam the channel I was the sporty one (laughs) so so, you know I've I've almost sort of played to the gallery on that although I think we both say that it's far more even we're much more similar than we are different Anna and I but yeah still a very deep relationship that.
0: Oh, it's lovely to hear. And tell me about those memories and the Eltham Swimming Club and and joining. So, I think a lot of the time when you tell someone you have to read this fantastic story, this boy, he was eleven, he swam the Channel. They go, "Oh, has he got swimming parents? or people pushing him into it?" And there's this assumption that someone might fall into an adventure like that by their parents, but that kind of wasn't really the story with you at all.
1: That's true. I've just finished watching the Olympics, and or I follow loads of sport. I love watching sport, and so often you. You come across people whose parents were very strong at a certain discipline, and and that's you know broadly what led them there. Nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to Anna and I swimming. You know, I'm not sure Mum could swim, just Dad, kind of, you know. But it was just a sort of collision of a happenstance or circumstances that that drew all those things together. We were a super normal, you know, Southeast London sort of suburban family, and. We moved to Eltham from, from Shooters Hill, where I grew up, and it was all very lovely, <laughs> had a really nice, sort of safe and stable childhood, but mum decided that we should just join the swimming club. And the, the only reason for that was that the cousins who live around the corner, who are now our sort of neighbours, if you like, were already in this swimming club and said it was a good idea. And they were a little bit older than Anna. So Anna now found herself with two kind of older girlfriends, if you will, in the neighbourhood. And so we all had to go down there. And it just so happened that that swimming club had built a reputation and had been built by one man, John Bullitt, who I'm sure we'll talk about a bit more, who had effectively built this swimming club single-handedly and sort of self-styled it into a, an open-water, long-distance swimming club way before, if you say open-water swimming now, it's a mass participation sport. So, and, and so much the better. Like, brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, suits nowhere. I don't care. <laughs> you know, open-water swimming is just a fantastic, fantastic sport. But back in the 80s, it was pretty niche. Well-known, but still niche. And certainly. You know, unusual for a club to be dedicated for it in landlocked Elton sort of thing, you know, uh, maybe on Folkestone or something. But John had built this club over a period of 20 years, and so we joined it. And I don't think we really knew what was coming, if I'm honest, because it's one of those things where one thing led to another. And um I couldn't swim. You know, I, when I turned up A seven, I couldn't get across the width in the small pool. And actually, from a sort of coaching point of view, I just find I find that, even I find that interesting. Because I've always thought that the story itself was unremarkable because it happened to me. And so you don't tend to think things about yourself are remarkable. But even I'm slightly struck by the fact that in the space of four years, I went from being a non-swimmer to someone who could swim 32 miles across the Dover Straits, you know, which shows you power of coaching, shows the power of human endeavor, shows you what children can accomplish, what youngsters can do with the right help, you know, and, and the right people around them and a desire to want to do it. All those things come in. So anyway, yeah, back to the sort of timeline. so one thing led to another, and um, before I knew it, we'd, Anna and I had been asked extra training, which was a big deal. oh what's the extra training? So, so we ended up you know in a rickety old minibus driving down the A2 to to Dover to go and you know pitch these big old tents, these big old sort of heavy frame canvas tents, big square boxes in a campsite, and we'd live in these tents for the weekend and go and sort of swim from Easter onwards you know, quite a lot of weekends and then the same drill, but up to Windermere for a week. And, and it was getting progressively more challenging. But of course, because I could see the older children doing the things I would be doing in two years' time, there was, it was always obvious to me that there was a kind of pathway. And I just had to follow this pathway. Uh, and of course, I, I loved it. <laughs> and enthusiasm is the keystone for everything, isn't it? If you, if you like doing something, it's so much easier to be good at it, isn't it? And so I just loved it. Anna and I both loved it. And We spent all of our time, end of the pool, John, who was the manager at Elton Bars, pretty much gave me the run of the place. You know, I, I could just turn up when I liked. And Beryl, who used to sit in the kiosk, the old kiosk, hi, Tom, hi, Beryl. And I'd just walk in and out whenever I had all the lifeguards. I could swim when I wanted. I'd go after school. Sometimes I'd go before school. And so this swimming club it was more than a swimming club. It was a kind of community. It was a little bit of a movement I've written somewhere because it meant so much to all of us. And it, what else? I mean, it, again, the, the, this is before things like lottery funding. It was before things like sports nutrition, you know? So the whole thing was kind of built around what, what you could do for yourself and what, what a group of people could do for themselves, you know? That's the idea of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and making things happen. And that was very important. And I guess you know, there's a community of parents as well. You know, everything was in the eye line. It, every, you know, the parents were about all the time, the socials and barbecues, all this good stuff. And people just kind of bumped along very happily, really. And it was fun. It was just fun. And those, if you think about that as a backdrop, you know, that, those are the conditions where kids can go and achieve remarkable things. And I suppose what happened, is, you know, John, who'd held this record with another swimmer, this youth record, for, with another swimmer, obviously had an eye, you know, to break it one day. So he was probably waiting for you know, someone to kind of, oh, okay, yeah, what about this, you know, like this young girl or this young boy? Because it could have been either, frankly. And I think that role came to me, you know, over time. I, I think when I describe all that to you, I just have an overall riding sense of being fortunate, and you know, really good fortune, right place, right time, a little bit of luck. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What a fantastic story. And also that you were in an environment where you had ownership over your passions and enthusiasm that you were able to turn up to the pool whenever you want and feel the sense of, well, although I've just happened upon swimming, I really enjoy it. And people are encouraging me to get into it. And that's something really special as well. It is.
1: I've contrasted it because I never did what I would term you know genuine competitive swimming. You know, watch you know Adam Peaty in the pool and things that, and the people who were heroes in those days like Duncan Goodyear. Some of my mates at school were into sort of sprint swimming, and and I, they did more swimming than I did. <laughs> you know, they used to go more often, earlier in the morning, and for longer. You know, so there was something slightly different about the style of what we were doing. Although I'm not sure I appreciated that. John would let me turn up. You know, I'll go on a Saturday morning. I walk myself up to the baths probably from the age of about nine and he'd say yeah just do half an hour lengths before it gets busy and then do what you want tom and then i would get out and i'll go to his office yeah all done and i remember you say well here's 15 pence and with the five pence i could buy a toffee bar with the 10 pence i could try a buy hot chocolate from the vending machine and it was simple life was just simple and i felt really grateful for that you know for the act of turning up having a swim and being given a bar a toffee and a chocolate bar and then i walk home you know and so i, I think with things like that, it's just very easy to, to get pulled in. And I guess um, for people who are interested in cold water swimming in particular, you know, we had Lido's, right? So John was the supervisor of Elton Bars, but he also had oversight from Elton Lido, which was in Elton Park. It's demolished now, sadly, but also Charlton Lido. So within sort of two-mile radius of the bars, there were two cold, you know, 33-yard swimming pools. And in the summer months, again, Anna and I just used to go to the Lido. Every single day, it was our place it was the it was the thing we did the two of us or with the cousins you know and of course what was happening from a training point of view is that i both of us were becoming very accustomed to the cold because we spent all day most days in cold water right and so when you start you know trying to do 10 miles across windermere and things one of the things one of the things on your problem list has gone away because you you can do the cold so yeah as i say a whole bunch of circumstances coming together to create those conditions
0: i remember going on holiday as a child to the Lake District and it just feeling out of this world. It's magical. If you've never seen mountains like that and you get there, it's just fantastic. And coming from South London and arriving there must have been incredibly exciting, but the water also must have been very different compared to Elton Baths or Charlton Lido suddenly being faced with swimming a lake. Was that a bit terrifying for nine-year-old you?
1: It was, yeah. I mean, the chronology of that was I first went on this, on this camp when I was eight years old. You know, and that was, that was quite young to be away from your parents, I felt, but uh, in in hindsight, I would say that, but, uh, but Anna was there, you know, and so I I got across the the width, it was a mile. I remember thinking, oh, I'm never gonna be able to do this, but of course I did. And then a year later, I I did the, the half length, you know, so you can get five miles across. Uh, And then when I was 10, I did the 10 and a half mile length. And that's when we thought, hang on a minute, you know, there's a world record next year if we keep going at this trajectory. And so by that stage, I'd just come to love the place. I, I, It was just a very special time because, again, you know, the tapestry of it all, you know, the, the music and the minibuses and, and you know, I don't know, listening to the Wham! album. We <laughs> could be anything, right? I can hear a song now and I can just remember being at Ambleside or at Bell Island or, you know, the special ferry where they dunk the ice cream in the chocolate. All those things are so evocative. The storms, the mountains, the taste of the water. Seeing your first trout, you know, <laughs> there's, there's so much... That enriched that that place and my childhood really. So, I guess the whole thing was just an adventure, and swimming was just the the thing that we were doing during the adventure. But the adventure was bigger than the swimming in some respects.
0: I love reading about the music, and I also love reading about the food. Hearing you describe the food that you would have when you were camping together, or also some of the meals that you would have as you were going, and the tomato soup that you would drink while you were swimming the Channel your memories are so rich. they're such a tapestry, like you say, of all these details. Did you have to work hard to bring all of that back when you were writing it? Or did actually the exercise of writing really help all these memories come back? Someone was telling me the other day, actually, that you're more likely to remember things when you have strong emotional connections. So perhaps the fact that these times were just so joyous for you means that each song, each meal, is it just incredibly lodged in your memory?
1: I've been pondering this one because, so I, I actually wrote this book on the train, right? On the, on the commute, on the daily commute to work. Wow. Okay. So I have a 45 minute trip from where I live to Waterloo. And at the point where I took it on, I thought, well, you know, it's going to be about 80,000 words. I did the math on have for example, about nine months. And, and i look, I've just conjured up an, an extra day a week, you know, <laughs> by yeah. doing an hour and a half a day. What, what was I doing
0: all these years? So anyone that says they don't have time to write a book, they need to speak to you. Yeah, it's,
1: it's evidently possible. Not, I'm sure I'll take it on again, but, I, <laughs> but when I sat down to write on the train, I just used to find this thing. It was just like opening a box and everything was there in place and intact, exactly as you'd need to be. And what I had to do was, was write down what I could remember and how it felt and what it looked like. You know, that's a memoir. <laughs> but I was surprised myself at just how, how much of a kind of download this stuff was in my mind. And it's that's certainly true that things like the music and the emotional feelings that you have around attachments to humans to making friends to having a crush on somebody to being upset to failure or to triumph to any of those kind of primal emotions they plus a soundtrack plus a scenery plus that cold water you know they just kind of form this videotape that all i had to do was narrate across the top you know type it into the laptop and so i found that a lovely lovely process i used to look forward to i used to spring out of bed you <laughs> know that's me i didn't mm. do that to get get on that train you know, pick up the story where i left off and and so i found that really um a lovely experience actually there were some darker bits because you know look, there's light and shade in every story and so it's true with this one and so writing some of the, the harder bits i can remember having to stop right typing and because i have th- you know, a confessional right so i I've, like bought myself a first class ticket for a period of time so i could get a table and a power supply you know otherwise i'm not going to do it and it was, it was sobbing into this laptop <laughs> on a really busy <laughs> commuter train. I okay, You better stop. You know, you'd like to take a day off of this chapter. <laughs> yeah. And go do it somewhere more private. Yeah. And and I think the other thing, people have said to me that and I don't this this could be absolute nonsense, but apparently there's a theory that, you know, cold water immersions stimulate certain synapses in your brain or chemicals or what have you that promote memory which would explain certainly to me why some of that stuff from the age of eight till 11 is quite so vivid and well recalled compared to things that happened years ago <laughs> just you know uh, in a much more nearby time frame so I don't know but taken as a package it was very easy to retell So many of the conversations I remember as they were spoken you know literally word for word some not but you know yeah
0: that's so interesting I'll believe what you're saying about cold water because I want that to be true
1: It's true. We all want that to be true for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: But the other interesting thing about memory, of course, is that every time we recall something, we are rewriting it. So we're remembering really the last time we told that story. When you were speaking to other people from the swimming club or maybe even your parents or Anna, were their recollections different to yours or was there anything, any other extra details that you'd forgotten about?
1: Well, the truth is I pondered my approach on this one a little bit because... It did occur to me at the point of starting to write it that others would have a very different recollection of what happened. But then I thought, well, do you know what? That doesn't really matter because what matters here is what what I saw and how I felt and how it appeared to me as a child because that's the story that's authentic. That's the truth. And so I didn't need to embellish anything or I didn't need to divert from anything because it was all how I felt. I, I deliberately sort of strayed away from hindsight in the telling of that. It's only, it's only when we get to the kind of final chapter, really, that I say something like, i later learnt mm. there's none of that through the book because it doesn't need to be there it's just you know, this world of wonderment through the for the eyes of a nine ten eleven old. i guess the other answer to your question though is you know has anything been recalled differently to me you know after the, after the fact or in the aftermath of having written a book and i'll say no yeah i, I, I definitely spoke to um when i sort of socialized the copy of it i did want it was important to me that Others gave it their consent, if you know what I mean. I hadn't mischaracterized anything or anyone to anyone's detriment. And of course, I, you know, make sure I didn't write, but I, I still wanted someone to say, yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's what I remember. And so I, I shared it with a few of the swimmers from the club and they all went, yeah, that's, that's what happened, mate. <laughs> mm. <laughs> You've captured it beautifully, you know. And so that made me feel good about the, the whole endeavor really because it hinted at this already, but. I was the one who got to do it, but it was a shared story. You know, I was pretty much writing that on behalf of everybody who ever passed through the ranks of Elton Trading and Swimming Club or ever met John Bullitt. And and from that point of view, the the book itself is a bit of a homage. You know, it's a it's a love letter to John, if anything, because he changed our lives. That man changed our lives, changed mine.
0: And tell me more about
1: John. John was uh, a bit of an enigma and he's quite difficult to describe, actually, partly because even now, we still don't know an awful lot about him. What we know is that he was adopted into the UK in the early 50s, I think, which suggests, you know, something after war, for example, French birth. We didn't know that until he died. You didn't have a family as such, certainly when we knew him. And he sort of lived with his landlady, longtime landlady for about 30 years as he made his way through leisure industry, as we would now call it, you know, starting off a lifeguard, working for Greenwich Borough Council, I guess, uh, until he ended up being the pool supervisor and building a swimming club and all that kind of thing. So that was his kind of, that was him, that was his CV on paper. But beyond that, he was (sighs) so much more to describe. He was very talented. He was a leader. He was certainly not uh, faultless, but he didn't need to be. He he could be quite irascible. (laughs) He could be (laughs) quite impatient. He had a temper. He was extremely funny. And he was unlike, perhaps a way to put it, he was unlike any adult, adult that I ever come into contact with at that point in my life, including my entire family, any teacher you care to mention, right? <laughs> or anyone else who might appear in your life. So he had a way of getting getting things out of youngsters, teaching them things that they needed to know, which was transformative, you know? And so, but he was a complex man, a brilliant, talented, emotional, complex person, but actually, a very loving person because the thing that was ever present, although it was hard to see it directly, but actually what was really going on there was the fact that he had an enormous amount to give others. Okay, He didn't have his own family, and so he gave it to the kids of other people's families. That was what was really going on. So yeah, uh, I think he created a world around him to find a route for that gift. That's the way i describe it.
0: And what a fantastic gift to give all of the children of the swimming club that you can do anything and that not only was he going to be there to support you, but that anything that you all set out to achieve, especially with a swim like the Windmere or the, the channel that you could do.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's really difficult sort of characterizing the eighties because it, like it, it is another country, but maybe not another universe. Mm. <laughs> if it were now, I mean, a, that stuff, well, you can't actually do the things that we were doing in those days. There's the sort of rules that prevent that from being the case. Even if they weren't, I don't think society would go for it anyhow, because I, I just think we're a bit too risk averse on these things, perhaps. But John's one of those guys where, and put, I think I wrote this somewhere that, yeah, he'd be on that shortlist for the Young Sung Hero Award at the BBC Sports Personality Show thing, you know? because I mean, even just the, the, the sort of data on it, yeah? I think he, he broke three world records, one of which was me, uh, that still stands, you know, he coached 15 or something novice relay teams including a two-way and so even just by sort of swimming standards in that field he was a leader of his time you know uh, and pushing the boundaries of what the the youth could do and and all with children right from all backgrounds within you know like a two-mile radius of elton swimming pool you know so he took took the material that the raw material that was around him and made amazing things from it And I think there were some values underpinning that. For him, it wasn't actually about the records. It was about participation. You know, it was about inclusion and and, and making things available for people to make the, the sort of betterment side of things, fulfilling people's ambitions and teaching them what they can do. I think the records were a byproduct of having got good at it and from having experimented, taken some risks, learned from them, and again, got really good at it. So, yeah, fascinating. From a coaching's point of view, when I go and speak to people, Or teams or, uh, sorry, schools or groups or businesses or whatever about this stuff. When there's coaches in the room, I just remind them that they're the most special people in the room, you know, because coaches change lives. So rather than knock them or look for darkness or question their motives and all the things that we seem to be so good at these days, sadly, you know, we should wrap them in cotton wool and say thanks. (laughs) Mm. Coaches are brilliant. They transform lives. Yeah, I say it a lot, don't I? But it's something I just, I sort of feel the need to bang the drum on once in a while because I think it's it's something that sadly gets a bit lost in the modern day.
0: And he gave you another important lesson as well, which was to be very humble about it. One of my favorite parts of the book was hearing the journey after you'd completed this record and how he was very wary of you getting too much of a big head, especially when, you know, a crate of Heinz soup turns up, as you've been, you know, mentioned in an interview that you'd been swimming the channel fueled by Heinz tomato soup. And he was very wary of you getting a big head. it sounds like there was a lot of coaching, not just about the swimming, but about life as well.
1: It's because he cared. You know, John cared deeply for me. And there's no doubt about it. Don't be a big head. I'm not having you be a big head T-fell, he used to say. <laughs> not letting you turn into a big head T-fell. I, he was behind the camera at BBC Television Centre, as you know, like Yvette Fielding's pinning on my gold badge. And there's this guy stood behind the camera with a sort of slightly sort of stern-looking face, oh, and you tend to a big head sunshine, you know, you think you got another thing coming. He he was always going to protect me from that, from myself. And there was a streak in my character that at that age, I think was probably quite susceptible to that. And I think he was a bit nervous about not letting an achievement like that become something that sort of bends you a little bit out of shape and makes you unlikable on some level. I think he was really conscious of that. What's really strange is how that stayed with me. So I, Helen and I, Helen's my wife, right? So when the opportunity to write this thing down arose and I persuaded myself and others that I might be able to do it, I sort of said, is it all right? Is it all right to, to even tell that story? Because there's something about me that just, that I feel deeply, I just don't want, I don't want to tell it. It feels wrong. It feels like I'm boasting. And, uh, we sat down about it a, a number of times and she said, and I sort of fell back on this in a way almost to, you can see I'm doing it now. I'm, I'm using Helen's argument to justify to myself. that It was okay to even write it down because she <laughs> I sort of cling on to it all based on John not, You can't be a bigger. You don't boast about what you do. That's not how we are. That's not how we do it. So just the acts of writing it down. And I sort of defend it to myself as saying, well, it's a homage to John and other people might find it helpful. Therefore, it's okay. But even now, I still have a streak, kind of stick a rock type thing, which is, you shouldn't really be talking about this at all. (laughs) Isn't that
0: strange? I think that makes sense though, because I think these qualities like pride and determination and at one point you're in the book writing about being nervous to cross Windermere but also being like, I can't be the only one not to do it. You've really got this resilience in you. And I guess that comes with the risk of also then maybe being a little bit proud, a little bit arrogant, a little bit boastful. So having to keep those in check, even as a child, sounds like a phenomenal lesson to learn.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think you sort of learn that there's two, there's two people you know, like within oneself. There's the inner person, which is the one that needs to fall back on that determination. I will not fail in this. But you're talking to yourself you know, on the 10th hour of a swim or whatever. You know, there's no one else to talk to. So you should just have a conversation with yourself, which is your own dogged determination to not give up, but then to not allow that to then transfer to the external you, which everybody else sees, which is to then be boastful or to be dogmatical or, or objectionable about anything, you know? Uh, so I think you, you sort of learn quite young that there's there's more more than one side to your character that you need to nurture. I think maybe that's the way, to, that's the way I now understand it anyhow.
0: And you mentioned as well that we are a lot more risk averse as a society and kind of thinking about memory and how you really wanted this story to be from your perspective and a perspective of the time. It also made me think that a lot of the book reviews about your book have ended up kind of questioning, well, was John even able to, was it the right thing to encourage children to cross the channel? And you end the note on a very optimistic and thoughtful note about encouraging our children to fulfill their dreams. We need to trust in others. We cannot do it alone. I wonder if you have any extra thoughts about, about that, because that's actually really stayed with me from that as well, because I'm a slightly different generation to you. And don't think I wasn't allowed to go, to go swimming on my own. My parents always had to take me.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of things to say. So firstly, some of the, that reaction surprised me. I thought i'd written i had i wrote a book that is you know unvarnished this is the truth about what it's like to swim the channel 80. it's how you feel about it this is the good stuff it's bad stuff right it's a memoir uh, so what happened and how i felt but i hadn't realized that 30 years on the facts of that had not changed one bit but in 1988 the reaction was to sort of throw a sort of know, metaphorical union jack around my shoulders and say well done yeah record great britain and these days yeah you know, 30 years later the facts haven't changed but of course people then The the, the first reaction is, "Are you okay?" Of course, I'm okay. Do I do I sound like I'm not okay? Did I write as if I'm not okay? And that really surprised me, almost upset me on some level. And 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 when you when you have the sort of gumption to read reviews of your own stuff, the overwhelming sort of theme that comes through is a reflection of what I think I wrote. So people think, "Yeah, it's joyous and inspirational and funny and moving and all this positive stuff." And then there's a sort of thread of negative. Which is, should never have happened, and one—I I won't name it—on your podcast, but you know, one sort of broadsheet review that effectively kind of—you know—accused John of being like a closet pedophile or something. It's like sort of objectionable stuff for a man who long since dead, and and, and, a, and a sort of this sense that this just was inappropriate and never to have happened, and that really sort of struck me. You know, maybe 30 years ago that book couldn't have be been written because no one would have been interested. Maybe that's the point of contrast that we've now got to where people find that story interesting because our, our society is sort of, you know, moved in a certain directions to say it probably w- couldn't happen now. <laughs> so I guess that that surprised me, you know. I, get, I think the other thing I learned is that pe- people sometimes read what they want to hear. <laughs> that's not poor English. <laughs> so if, if if you approach it from the from the position of cynicism looking for darkness you'll find some you know if you start from the opposite position of well you know I think life's about adventure and achievement then you'll find that and so more than one thing can possibly be said about the same text maybe I don't know it's in the eye of the hole, isn't it so but I'm I'm still I, st- I can't stand my ground on it you know that <laughs> should I have dialled up the joy a little bit maybe you know but I think it's pretty joyous but nothing bad happened here you know this was a story of a of a kid fulfilling his dreams, surrounded by people who loved him and who he loved, which has helped him and people around him for the rest of his life. You know, nothing not to celebrate, right? More's the pity that we seem to have created a set of conditions where that's no longer possible. We've probably lost something there, if I'm honest.
0: Hmm. And you mentioned that it's helped you later in life and also helped people around you. Tell me a little bit about how it's helped you in your life since swimming the channel, as well as the fact that you got a gold blue Peter badge, which must have been pretty
1: <laughs> good. I, I, So there you This there's, there's my boastful street. Shall I drop yeah. that in? Yeah. I mean, look, it's no sort of spoiler, really, to say that the sad end to the book is, is, is John's passing. And that happens not long after the swim, which, of course, is quite a traumatic thing for the then 12-year-old me. And out of that sort of car, car wreckage, if you like, I'm forced to find new things to fill that space, that void that was left, not just by John, but by the things that we would do, that adventure of that swimming. And so I could see a real thread, direct thread of connection between, you know, channel swimming and, you know, me joining the army at 17 and me spending my 20s in Afghanistan, Iraq, and all that stuff. Because I was trying to fill that gap and and, and, find something to bridge it, you know, to, to, to fill the chasm that was left by his departure. And something that no one really could replace, you know, my parents, you know, didn't even try, nor could they. So I think proving to yourself that these things are possible, but it's not all about you. It's about others. It's about teams. It's about trust, 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 trust. Always a word I come back to. I think I learned that pretty young and then I sort it out at the future. I still do. Like if I, <laughs> if I think about my job now, it's terribly dull financial services type roles, but I, I don't respond well if I'm in an environment where people don't trust each other, you know? And I, I learned that so, so young, it's kind of ingrained, it's tattooed in, in the way I think to the point I can't even control it, you know. And the army was like that. The army is all about operating in teams who trust one another and put themselves through situations so that when they need them, you know, they they know exactly what will happen and who to turn to and how it's going to work and that kind of thing. So I think that probably resonates in many, many professions, you know, but I, I don't know it's difficult. I, I can just see that connection of the, the things that I was doing as a youngster and the path that I subsequently followed and the things I now fall back on as a parent. So that's the other one we haven't touched on. Mm. All the things I said to you earlier, I'm, I'm no champion of child neglect. <laughs> of course, I'm, not. I'm a parent to two young children, you know, <laughs> love them dearly and protect them with with all my heart, you know. But I'm, I'm, I've, I've still got those lessons from, from my youth, which is to know that you can't have your eye on them every single second of the day. And sometimes you need to keep them safe, but you need to accept a little bit of risk in life. And so I think that helps me as a parent, really. Yeah.
0: What's it been like being part of adventures with them and seeing them have those moments of trepidation? I guess it must be exciting for you. You want to encourage them, but it also must make you travel back to, you know, standing on the beach about to swim the channel and having those memories of yourself at that age.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, it's all inspiring, really, parenting sometimes. And you watch, you know, my oldest is six. And you sort of see them go through these moments of of fear and, uh, and trepidation, but more often than not, it's actually just almost <laughs> like fearless, and they they just charge in and they just go for it. You know this sort of raw enthusiasm of of youngsters. I, so we, I Helen and I laugh because sometimes we we try and get in the, in the sea as often as possible. You know every weekend if we can, and they will get in early in the season, early in the year, wetsuit or otherwise, and I, I have to make them get out. At the point where their sort of this, their lips start wobbling, and a bystander sort of look and think, oh, that's a terrible nuclear. So you don't realise they're crying because I'm making them get out, and they don't want to, <laughs> not because I've made them stay in to the point of hypothermia. You know, so their they're raw enthusiasm, something to behold, really. But I do, I'm like my parents in this. You know, I don't harbour any ambitions for them; that they wouldn't hold for themselves. I just want them to enjoy being around the water, to feel confident in and around the water, because if you satisfy that condition, then everything, anything that they then want to do is is going to be fine. You know. But I, yeah, I won't be signing up for any sort of swimming squads and that kind of thing. It's not really not really how we think about it.
0: Has it given you a different relationship with your own parents, thinking back about them and you know how nervous your mum must have been, but also how inspired, like you said, they weren't swimmers. So you having the grit and determination to do this thing that was maybe quite unexpected for them, it must have been a real adventure, and then going through that with your own children has it put things into a new perspective for you?
1: It has actually. Oh, it's a good point you raise. Upon becoming a parent, I start to realise or value their own role in this more than I ever did before. And I coined a phrase that sort of rolled around the family a bit of benign neglect, which also was quite a handy moniker of how you sort of describe our mindset in those days. But actually, it was more than that because I think it took a lot of courage. But my dad, in particular. Was he's been the epitome of selflessness, isn't he? Because he's effectively given over some of his emotional terrain, right, to a man of a similar age, with a similar sort of stature in his son's life. And he said, "That's okay. You know, you can have. You know, I'm willing for my son to sort of hero worship you on some level and, and occupy some of the space which I would naturally occupy for his own good and for your own good. And I, I look at that as a complete act of selflessness, uh, which I've only really started to understand now. As a dad myself, to two young girls, and also my mum, you know, because m- mum sort of plays the role of you know, having sort of set set the whole ch- train running, rolling, if you will, and then having to sort of conquer her own maternal fears at the point where her son's standing on that beach at five o'clock in the dark in France, <laughs> you know, sort of waving me goodbye the night before on the on the doorstep at ten p.m. to go and get on that ferry, you know, which and I, even then, you know, like back in 88 it was still a little bit scary it was four weeks prior that renata Agondi had died right and which if you're a parent i mean how would i react to that she was this woman was 26 world-class swimmer died of hypothermia
0: swimming the channel and you were about to do it four weeks later
1: <laughs> four weeks later yeah swimming the channel it had been in the news for all the wrong reasons you know she was a serious serious swimmer and i wonder how i wonder if i would have had the courage to sort of go through with that you know if i put myself in their shoes which is remarkable but again, I think when you when you rationalise it, take the emotion out of it for a second, what they actually then had to do was just look at the facts, look at the evidence that was in front of them. You know, there was a world-class coach, you know, a fantastic thing, safety systems, you know, doctor on board, you know, training swims, threshold competency all that stuff had been proven. All the boxes had been ticked. And ultimately it just came down to that word. I come back to it every time, trust was that they trusted John to never let things get to a point where I was you know, in in, in any kind of genuine peril. But yeah, so that trust and that courage are the things that I'll always thank them for.
0: Fantastic life lessons. And you've been able to share that with other people in your book. And also it sounds like you do a lot of talks and also as a parent as well, when you give this talk or you're talking to people about coaching, it sounds like coaching and trust is something that really comes up a lot. But I think with any story, people do take what they want from it as well. And I'm sure they also give you their own stories back and tell you about how your story and adventure has inspired them. Do you ever get to hear stories from people that are really touching about the way that their stories affected them?
1: I get inspired by people every day. The the, the humbling ones, the ones that really sort of almost rubble me to the point where I'm wiping away the tears, you know, when someone, I've had a couple of these where people sort of write in and say, hey, I read your book uh, two years ago, or even more than that, I watched you on Blue Peter when I was 12 and 30 years later, I've just fulfilled my ambition and overcome this thing on my fifth attempt. And by the way, I've got level four cancer, mm. you know, and and there's people who take that sort of nucleus of an idea and then just blow it up like, to achieve something that I couldn't hope ever, ever to have achieved, you know? And, almost use it as a springboard to overcome adversity that I've never faced in my life. And I'm not even sure how, how well I would deal with it if I did. You know, that's the stuff that really inspires me back. Because you think, gosh, you know, don't, you, I can't even mention me. In the, I, I wouldn't put me in the same sentence as you. you know, what you've done there is just off the scale because of the, the, the situation you faced, you know? And of course, I look at the thing I did and would naturally downplay it on the basis that, you know, the most fortunate kid in the world. We had everything, you know, all these happy circumstances that combine to make a perfect cocktail of success you know it's very different from starting something in a position of adversity and then overcoming that adversity i never had to do that you know i can't speak with any authority on that i wouldn't claim to so i i come across people like that all the time which is an enormous privilege really and a, and a pretty worthy outcome of having written it down <laughs> you know, i'm pleased you know, i'm pleased that i do come across them
0: i think writing a book although you know you write the end it really is the beginning of a dialogue with other people, and always books are a conversation, and you write a story and you share it, and it creates space for other people's stories and It sounds like that's been something that's happened more and more as outdoor swimming has become more popular. And it must be nice that you know you have a job as you mentioned working in financial services, doing something completely different, and then every now and then you must get an email from someone like me that says, I want to hear and talk about your story and that must be happening all the time even more because Open water swimming is very trendy now. Let's let's be honest; it's a lot more popular than it was at Elton, po- Elton Baths.
1: I know, large puddle, people dive into it now, <laughs> um, I, and it's so much the better for that, isn't it? I, I think the, the magic of open water swimming is just how truly accessible it is for people. You know, if you actually look at the, the literature, the sort of, you know, swim lit mini genre out there these days, and good, you know, loads of women writers. I th- and I, 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 when I first uh, got into swimming. I learned from the age of seven that, you know, swimming is, is completely sort of gender neutral, right? If anything, you know, when I was growing up, the girls were better than the boys, particularly the stuff that we were doing. John felt the same, which was great. And so I look around at the, at the writing now and the quality of the writing, and I think it's, it's something to celebrate. I think it's so completely accessible by so many different people and also people are a bit more relaxed about the the rules you know it doesn't really matter how you want to do it it doesn't really matter if you want to wear a wetsuit or if you don't you know it doesn't matter what stroke you want to do but and, and so you know if you have said to me you know the, the great north swim would have what was it, 70 seventy thousand participants wasn't ridiculous that's probably the wrong number but you know 10 years ago you, you wouldn't no one would have believed you and I, I suppose that speaks to people's Uh, well people being very in touch with the mindfulness side of things and the connection with nature i guess that stuff gets dialed up during a time of a pandemic as well when we all sort of crave that connection as well so i think it's all to the good really you can fill a bookshelf on books on open water swimming these days and that's brilliant because you'll read a lot of different perspectives and many many different stories
0: i love books about swimming because they're not about swimming it's not that i'm sat there thinking oh i want to get some good tips about you know how to cross the channel or what wetsuit to wear they're about human resilience. They're about people connecting with their past or overcoming something. And I think that's always really, really nice. I didn't know that Swimlet was a genre. I mean, that's a great name. So I'm very into that. And for people that haven't read your book, hopefully they're feeling inspired and really ready to get into that story because it just is so joyous. That's a word that you've used a lot. And it's incredibly true. It's a story about grit and resilience, but it's a joyous one at that. And my favorite parts always the bits with you and Anna, which I love. But if you were going to leave us on a final note about what people should take from that story and from your adventure, what do you think that it would be?
1: I think it's um, try not to fear failure, you know, because if if you can just get past that bit, then you never know what's going to happen. That was the same for me when I turned 40. Someone asked me if I could write a book. I felt exactly the same as I did when I was 10. And I had to relearn the lesson that I felt when I was 10. I think the second bit is, you know, We've already said it actually, but you need others. this isn't none of this stuff we can't do it on our own. you know we need others around us, and with those two conditions in place a- anything's possible, absolutely anything is possible. I proved it. I was a distinctly average kid, you know, I really was, and people sort of might not believe that and they still don't believe it. And I'm telling you it's true, and that book proves the point <laughs> you know so I think yeah something something to do with that that that, that so it's it's a it's a, it's a that, that thing about trust, you know using others, being willing to trust others and not being scared of failing. I think that's the biggest stuff that I've taken from it.
0: Thank you so much, Tom. It's been wonderful to chat to you.
1: Lovely. Thanks for it. Nice to see you.
0: Thank you to Tom for telling me more about his journey swimming the channel. His memoir, A Boy in the Water, is available wherever you usually buy your books. Be sure to check it out if you love an inspiring and heartwarming story. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, try hard. Say goodbye to Chlorine and shop their skin and hair products at 15% off with the code TIDAL. Thanks again for listening to series one and I'll see you again soon.